Good afternoon and welcome to the 141st of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today we will discuss COVID-19 in the Anthropocene with Christoph Rossel and Bern Scherer. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also watch COVID Calls on Facebook Live and on Periscope. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and topics. And please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. And I just want to uh, amplify this because people have been reaching out of late, suggesting ideas, uh, friends, colleagues, and themselves. And I really do appreciate that. This coming Friday, we're going to have a memorial episode in which we're going to read obituaries. This is in part of the marked by COVID week of mourning that's going on right now and still looking for a couple of people who might like to come on to the program and read an obituary and explain what it means to them. So please get in touch with me by email sgk23 at drexel.edu or you can find me on Twitter at US of Disaster and you can direct message me there and let me know if you're interested in participating even for just 10 minutes. As of today, October 5th, 2020, there are 1,038,797 deaths from COVID-19 globally, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. There are 7,433,828 cases in the United States. That's up from 7,292,422 cases reported on Friday. There are now a total of 209,881 deaths from COVID-19 reported in the United States. That's up from 208,068 reported on Friday. Again, keeping very close to that 1,000 deaths a day rate that we've been at for so long. In Germany, there have been a total of 9,533 deaths reported from COVID-19. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic in some way, and I'd like to continue that now. We've heard a lot about Walter Reed Hospital and veterans affairs in the last couple of days. It seemed appropriate to read this one. Headline, COVID infected VA therapist suspected he was dying, friend says. This is by Michael Ruane and was published on April 30th in the Washington Post. At 11.21 a.m. on April 14th, Caroline Sangos got a Facebook message from her old friend Calvin Richardson Jr., with whom she had worked for six years at Veterans Affairs Medical Center in Washington. He was in the hospital, he said, and he regretted to tell her that he had the coronavirus and was not doing well. In hindsight, she said this week she believes he knew he was dying and wanted to include her in the circle of friends whom he informed. He wanted the people he was close to to know, she said. I was grateful. That, for me, was a gift. Five days later, she got a phone call that he had died in the University of Maryland Charles Regional Medical Center in La Plata, Maryland. Mr. Richardson 
as she said she always called him, worked with her in the substance abuse rehabilitation program at the VA hospital. He was 57, she said. She had left the hospital in June after 14 years there as a psychotherapist. She said Richardson was an addiction therapist who ran substance abuse recovery groups and did case management, among other things. We shared patients, Sangos said. We were very family-oriented as a treatment team. He was always extremely warm and gentle, she said. The veterans loved him. He was an army veteran, she said. He was the kind of person who, if you stopped by to talk to him, he would always make time, even if he had other things he needed to do, she said. He had children, he had grandchildren, he was very involved in his children's lives. His son, Amari, in a Facebook post the day he died, called his father, father my hero and my backbone. I don't understand what lesson I'm supposed to learn from this or why this is happening, he wrote April 19th. They had just spoken the day before. I told you how much I love you, just stay strong. And you told me, I know son, I love you too, don't worry. I'm so heartbroken right now and empty, I really lost my best friend, he wrote. I love you pops, always and forever. Songos said Richardson and his wife had just moved into a new home in the Maryland suburbs. In the message exchange, Richardson told me that he had contracted COVID-19 and that he had pneumonia, she said. He said one day he got it and the next day he was in the hospital and that he was really struggling. He was a light in the clinic, she said. He always was smiling. He had a great sense of humor. He was genuinely interested in other people's well-being and was a very compassionate person. Honest to God, he was a salt of the earth good guy, she said. I'm beside myself that he died so quickly at such a young age. A truly good soul. Okay, I'm going to bring up my guests now and introduce them. It's good to see friends and very excited to introduce my guest today as we talk about the Anthropocene. Christoph Rosal is group leader of the Umbrella Project Knowledge in and of the Anthropocene and a researcher and curator at the House der Kulturen der Welt Berlin, the House of World Culture, or for short, HKW. He studied the history of science and media studies in Berlin and Toronto in 2012. He became a post, he became a pre-doctoral fellow at the Max Planck Institute for the History of Science and later that year, a research associate in HKW's The Anthropocene Project. As a member of the curatorial team ever since, he's been principally involved in devising and developing the follow-up projects, Technosphere and the long-term initiative, Anthropocene Curriculum, a global platform for experimental research and education that he co-heads with Katrin Klingen. In his doctoral research, he deals with the prehistory and history of epistemic foundations of general circulation models, which are derived from numerical weather prediction techniques, but have now evolved into a core component of so-called Earth system models. The second guest, Dr. Bern Shearer, has been a director of the Haus der Kulturen der Welt Berlin since 2006, and he's held an honorary professorship at the Institute European Ethnology at the Humboldt University of Berlin since 2011. His central areas of work lie in philosophy, semiotics, aesthetics, and intercultural questions. Since 2012, Scherer has headed the Anthropocene Project, and since 2014, the Project 100 Years of Now, both at HKW. He is curating the Dictionary of Now as part of the latter project. Parallel to this, he's overseeing the conceptual development of HKW's third large-scale project, the new alphabet. In his tenure at HKW, Scherer has guided its conceptual development 
from an institution that presented non-European cultures into one dedicated to the curating of ideas in the making in a world that is changing not only globally, but also in planetary terms. Bernd and Christoph, welcome to COVID Calls. Thanks Hello. for inviting us. Well, yeah, thanks for having us. I'd like to start the way that I usually do. Let me just remind folks too at the outset that you can get your questions in. If you're watching on YouTube Live, just put them into the YouTube Live chat. If you're watching on Periscope, following on Twitter, just post your questions there and we'll get them that way. Or you can email me directly at sgk23 at drexel.edu. So I'll start the way I usually do, which is to just to ask you each where you're calling from and what the COVID-19 pandemic situation is looking like there today. Christoph, can I start with you, please? Yeah, sure. I'm calling from uh, Berlin, uh, Schöneberg, which is uh, one of the inner districts uh, in, in Berlin. Um, the situation in Berlin currently is actually uh, uh, more on the downside of things, uh, I would I would say. Um, we haven't we haven't been hit very hard by the pandemic uh, so far. We, we were coming through uh, the first wave in, in March and April pretty well, um, though we had, we had uh, of course, uh, a big lockdown in place. And then the summer was simmering on. Um, and now, as, as many have expected, uh, we see uh, numbers rising uh, pretty fast, so that um, half of the inner, inner districts of Berlin are now considered to be risk areas. Um, even um, so, um, people, if people would want to travel within Germany, uh, several states, uh, provinces uh, would uh, enforce a quarantine for people like me, for instance. What's been the situation as far as your work at the Max Planck Institute? Has it been open? Have you been able to go in or are you doing everything remotely? Uh, well, we had a we had a shutdown, uh, uh, an almost complete shutdown, uh, with just basic a, a basic crisis team being present at the institute for I think about two months, maybe uh, maybe ten weeks, um, and then a gradual reopening uh, of the institute. Um, you know, with the usual uh, requirements. You know, you have to be put on the list uh, in order to enter the building. Only one person. Uh, per room, uh, etc. Um, until it got kind of normal again uh, in in late August, um, early September, um, and just as of today, we received a new um, requirement uh, to wear masks uh, inside the building at basically all times. Mm. Thanks for. Giving us that context, Bernd, let me ask you the same question, where you're calling from and how's it looking there? Yeah, I live in the same city than Christoph does. So uh, Christoph gave you already quite a number of information about the situation here in Berlin. Uh, just uh, one observation uh, during the lockdown uh, that brought really urban life to a standstill to some extent. But nowadays, if you go through the streets, uh, you have at least uh, publicly in the open, uh, many people on the streets, uh, almost a normal life on the streets, uh, at least. Um, uh, that changed quite dramatically from, let's say, uh, April up to uh, 
to up to now. Uh, as far as uh, my institution is concerned, the uh, HKW Cultural Institution in the center of Berlin, um, we uh, had a lockdown from mid of March up to uh, beginning of May, uh, in where people basically worked at home, uh, at home office, uh, and but we were more or less all connected with each other had uh, workshop teams going on uh, during that time, but didn't have any programming going on. So the, the place was, clo was closed for the public. We kept the place closed for the public up to the end, up to end of May. Um, and uh, uh, communicated that right from the beginning, that we are not going to do any programming uh, for, let's say, two months uh, at least. Um, then um, what changed is uh, end of April, it became clearer and clearer that um, there is a difference between the uh, corona transmission indoor and outdoor, uh, that the outdoor situation is much more, uh, is with, with much less problems connected. So uh, we started to think uh, to develop an outdoor program. We have a wonderful roof uh, terrace uh, at the house and uh, summer is approaching uh, in uh, end of April, beginning of May. So uh, we developed an outdoor program basically addressing uh, uh, the Berliners, uh, the Berlin cultural scene as well as audiences from Berlin. So. Uh, we developed a program uh, where basically uh, Berlin uh, artists, musicians, writers uh, were in, involved in this program. And it was really addressed to the people in Berlin because you really started to feel after two, three months that people wanted to get out of their homes, wanted to get into the open, wanted to have uh, social communication with others. So the question was only how to um, develop procedures and protocols uh, to, to deal with the situation. And uh, as I mentioned, uh, that was much easier to do in the, um, in the outdoor facilities than that it was to do uh, indoor. So that was one reaction that we developed this kind of uh, outdoor program. Uh, the other was, uh, I think, like a lot of uh, cultural institutions did uh, in the last months, uh, think of uh, uh, new ways to deal with the digital uh, uh, and not uh, digital programming. At the beginning, uh, as you probably discussed already, uh, a lot of people or a lot of institutions just put analog programs uh, in the in the digital world um, we didn't do that because we thought uh, it may, uh, digital presentation needs other for formats other forms of um, and other aesthetic aesthetics to uh, uh, to be to be developed so uh, we developed uh, a program which we call cc world cc dot uh, double dot uh, world where we invited uh, around 25 artists around the world to reflect the situation we are in um, 
and uh, that became quite interesting for us in uh, as far as uh, the conceptual methods of the artists were concerned, but also the content uh, of, the, of the program. So we, we developed basically this kind of two-line uh, reaction, uh, outdoor programs uh, for the Berlin audiences and digital programming for uh, international and global audiences. Sorry, I don't understand you. No, I was just, uh, okay. we had just a, a slight delay on the internet, but I think we're, okay. we're fine now. I was just gonna bring that CC World up on so people can check that out, ccworld.hkw.de um, to see that. I think that's, it's um, really resonates, you know, with folks I've talked to who are in the museum world in the United States um the Penn Museum here I did several sessions with the Academy of Natural Sciences uh, which I think both of you are, are familiar with here in Philadelphia it's the oldest natural science museum in in America and what they found was that there was this um immediate demand placed on them that there were a lot of schools and organizations that as part of their regular yearly program really expected those institutions to provide content and interactivity with them and so it placed enormous demand on their education teams to take programs that may not even be completely finished and bring them up into some sort of online interactive um, and yeah. it seems yeah, like that's something similar yeah. with you right Bern? Yeah, I mean, there was a third line of, of work, uh, which we did uh, online, uh, which uh, relates directly to the Anthropocene uh, project too. Uh, I mean, the house uh, in the last 10 years uh, was working basically on major transformation processes of our societies. And uh, as has been quite often said already or, or mentioned in the context of the COVID crisis is, that uh, the uh, COVID crisis uh, to some extent accelerated or focused uh, on uh, already existing uh, transformation processes and, and brought them into, yeah, um, into the light to, to, to some extent. So uh, what, what we did is um, related to actual, actual developments we used also our archive to bring out of the archive, uh, so to say, uh, pro programmings, which uh, we did uh, in the last five, six years, um, and um, related, so to say, this kind of uh, knowledge space the house developed in the last years to the actual developments. Uh, and I think when we come to discuss the relationship between COVID and the Anthropocene, we can uh, go into more details to discuss that. That's such so an... I think this is a very interesting uh, work. Uh, uh, I really work with how to animate the archive in this kind of uh, uh, crisis. That's such an interesting question. It also speaks to the uniqueness of the Anthropocene project and the Anthropocene curriculum that you've both been pursuing with your colleagues there, which is it's not normal, at least the way I think of cultural institutions in general, um, to follow a program of development over so many years in a particular area so that you actually have an archive to draw from 
And let me, um, so let me reframe around the Anthropocene a, a little bit now. And this is what I wanted to speak with you both about. I had Dipesh Chakrabarti on earlier. Uh, he was with me in May and we talked about the Anthropocene and it has come up multiple times in my conversations in COVID calls, talking about environmental justice and topics like that. I'd like to go back into it, maybe from the, the ground up, so to speak. Christoph, let me ask you, if you don't mind, just to do some definitional work for us. What's the Anthropocene? Well, if that term has uh, slipped uh, the attention of your, your guests uh, yet, um, in a nutshell, um, as everyone knows, uh, geological time is divided up into uh, different slices and different periods and, and epochs. And uh, as it turns out, um, humans uh, or the industri industrialized humankind has apparently brought on an entirely new geological epoch, one that is um, succeeding the Holocene. The Holocene is this uh, basically the, the uh, geological epoch uh, after the end of the last ice age the Wisconsin Ice Age uh, uh, on the in North America uh, that ended uh, 11,700 years ago. And then we, we inherited this uh, extremely stable climate uh, of the Holocene Epoch in which basically all human civilization um, or, or higher civilization uh, thrived, uh, was born and, and, and thrived. And now, um, uh, Within the last few centuries, if not even decades, uh, we have turned up the world. Uh, we have uh, turned the world uh, upside down again, and um, push um, uh, the natural state of the global environment into a new uh, um, uh, Earth system state uh, that uh, geologists have tentatively called uh, the Anthropocene. Uh, anthropos meaning uh, humans and seen is the new um, uh, uh, meaning the new state or the new uh, uh, period and um, basically in, in common usage the Anthropocene denotes pretty much everything uh, that we uh, currently discuss under the headings of uh, the climate crisis the biodiversity uh, crisis uh, uh, ocean um, uh, um, um, acidification, um, basically the, all the biogeochemical uh, transitions that uh, our industrial activities uh, have produced uh, so far. And uh, even beyond that, uh, even you know, uh, this term has, has made a, a, a gigantic uh, uh, um, impact, uh, not just on the, in the natural sciences, but also on the cultural uh, sciences and, and the sort of general uh, debate about what does it mean, uh, what, what what agency do humans and which humans, you know, which part of the humanity has which agency uh, um, uh, that has actually, you know, turned turned um, not our species uh, uh, maybe, but but. Uh, as a, a specific form of industrial uh, capitalist uh, uh, production and society into such a dominant uh, earth-shaping uh, figure. 
it's such an interesting point to make too that that historians and humanist social scientists like ourselves haven't really waited around for the geologists to to settle their normal geological disputes before we kind of jumped in and started using the concept uh, as a way to understand environmental change over time and inequality and many other kinds of issues which i'm sure we'll talk about what is the state of play right now uh Bern, let me ask you as far as the anthropocene working group and um, the, the geological component of it has the term been now formally accepted by the geological community uh, not yet. Uh, the, the process of formalizing the Anthropocene uh, concept is uh, still going on. Uh, <clears throat> at the moment, uh, the uh, uh, I don't know if Christoph mentioned that uh, there are procedures uh, how to define or how to formalize such an Earth epoch. And uh, part of this process is that uh, there is an Anthropocene working group which uh, has been established uh, more than 10 years ago, uh, consisting out of more than 30 scientists around the world, um, basically earth scientists, geologists, but uh, also from some other disciplines uh, like international law, uh, people uh, are involved in, in this process, archaeologists are involved in the process. Uh, so their um, task is to collect the evidences uh, worldwide uh, in order to pre prepare the formalization. And uh, one major uh, part of this process is uh, to define the golden spike. The golden spike is, so to say, the, the symbol, the uh, iconic place uh, where uh, the uh, material processes manifest themselves as a new uh, epoch. And um, in order to do so, they had to develop uh, an, a scheme, a global scheme of uh, points where they take scores um, out of the uh, out of the out of the sediments uh, in order to look to which extent uh, humans have really transformed uh, the earth um, uh, the earth system so um, this uh, this kind of investigation this kind of research of, uh, of uh, uh, producing these cores and then of analyzing them uh, according to different kind of uh, parameters markers uh, is uh, is in the process now and probably will be finished by 2022. Uh, and uh, en at the moment, the idea is that end of 2022, the Anthropocene Working Group is proposing one uh, golden spike uh, to another commission uh, who then takes the final uh, decisions on that. So it's a, a long time process. I mean, the hypothesis uh, of uh, as it is discussed now uh, was done in 2000 the uh, working group was established around 2008 uh, and uh, probably by 2024-25 we will have final
just to remind folks, you're listening to COVID calls and talking about the Anthropocene and the pandemic today with Bern Scherer and Christoph Rosal. So thank you both for situating us in the Anthropocene. And it's important, I think, to, to lay down that definition and that trajectory a little bit because it kind of sets up for us a, a discussion about how we might find some commonalities in the COVID world, you know, the many different ways that COVID is manifesting itself, which may somehow seem, um, of course, they're geographically disparate, and of course, they're affecting people differently. But the thinking with an Anthropocenic mind on this, you know, bringing them into an Anthropocenic frame helps, I think, from an explanatory point of view. I wonder, Christoph, let me just ask you first, well, some of the different things that we're seeing in this sort of COVID-19 reality. Could you talk a little bit about how you see those in connection with the Anthropocene idea? In other words, how does the Anthropocene make a world in which COVID-19 flourishes? Well, I see that um, happening on probably several registers uh, at once. Um, uh, for one, if, if you take the view of the Anthropocene, if you really zoom out uh, from, from the current moment, um, uh, you recognize COVID-19 as, as a dot in a pattern, uh, uh, maybe. You know, it's, it's a sign that, that, um, that the Earth is, is transitioning, uh, that uh, risks uh, for life on Earth is increasing, uh, including uh, human life and human health. Um, because um, there is a lot of uh, mobility, uh, mobility between species. Uh, everyone knows that that uh, COVID nineteen uh, uh, has emerged from probably uh, a bat uh, that's uh, uh, transmitted the virus uh, via a pangolin then to to a human on a on a um, on a wet market in in Wuhan, and and that is kind of a symptomatic uh, of the way in which uh, humans have to have transgressed uh, species uh, uh, boundaries uh, and barriers uh, by bringing these two species uh, first of all together in, in close proximity on a wet market and then into a human sort of uh, um, uh, human carriers uh, that were working on it and then uh, and here's the second register. It's spread all over the world because we have this high interconnection of of populations uh, going on. You know, with air traffic uh, mostly. Um, so we have uh, a high rate of of uh, transmission uh, of interconnection, uh, much higher than 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 it was used uh, for millions of years uh, for millions of years uh, in which higher life has has. Uh, uh, has inhabited uh, this planet. Um, so uh, we all know that, that viruses have uh, mutation rates, right? They, they, they mutate uh, over time. They adjust to their new hosts. Uh, this one didn't. Um, it, it just uh, captured uh, millions of other human hosts uh, in, in a, at a blink of an eye, uh, basically, uh, across uh, the world. Um, so at one point, it is it is uh, the close contact uh, uh, to species. Uh, another sign is also um, that 
uh, emerging infectious diseases, uh, uh, to which of which uh, COVID-19 is uh, or SARS-CoV-2 is, is is one uh, one virus uh, of that. They um, proliferate, especially in species that are uh, adapted to human environments or that are close to being adapted uh, to human environments. And that's uh, one of the sort of scientific uh, results of, of uh, recent studies, that it's not only that, that we have catched a virus that was hidden in, in, the, in the tropical forests and, and somewhere in South Asia, but that these bats that carry these viruses, and there are 10,000 of more of them um, still lingering, um, that this has um, um, that this has probably emerged or or, or replicated uh, in bats that are that are adapted uh, to uh, human environments. So that puts another pressure on on uh, virus uh, mutation and their the uh, danger uh, also uh, to humans. Uh, so what we see is is a sort of a, a concert of uh, habitat uh, destruction of um, uh, you know agriculture of hunting of agricultural practices of of uh, trade uh, of species that didn't happen before um, um, uh, but is now happening happening uh, at a vast scale um, um, not just in in uh, Southeast Asia or in East Asia but also as we have seen in uh, in the case of Ebola in in Central Africa for instance, right where, uh, where, where primates uh, uh, catched uh, or, or transmitted Ebola um, uh, just basically uh, uh, two decades ago, uh, uh, or maybe a little more. But um, we, we see we see a pattern that uh, um, these emerging uh, infectious diseases are, are on the rise. They are on the rise uh, dramatically since about uh, 19, the 1940s. Um, because of these of these factors uh, that humans intervene uh, drastically into uh, ecosystems, into uh, species ha uh, habitats, and that the, that these viruses are are also changing. Um, if I could, could add one more point to that, uh, another herd of of viruses is um, our, our is animal husbandry and mass. Uh, uh, sort of mass herding of animals in, in CAFOs or, or other industrial farming uh, operations uh, that provide um, an ideal hotspot uh, for uh, for um, uh, diseases uh, who emerge, uh, you know, when introduced by wild animals, but then um, proliferating uh, at enormous speeds in these. Uh, uh, genetically pretty homogeneous uh, um, uh, herds of uh, pigs or of cattle uh, farms, etc. So these kinds of uh, uh, big industrial uh, agricultural uh, operations also contribute um, to emerging infectious diseases, and all of that uh, are, are pretty uh, blatant signs of of the Anthropocene and uh, their sort of their uh, recasting uh, global resources or natural resources into uh, a sort of an uh, industrial industrialized uh, food operation uh, uh, for humans let me bring burned in on this thank you christoph 
anything you want to add to that you know, sort of yep. things that we're seeing that manifest themselves as part of this virus that actually tell us a broader story as clues into the Anthropocene? Yeah, um, perhaps two, three points when you look uh, from an anthropocenic uh, perspective on the virus. Um, number one, um, the, the virus itself is not a living being. It needs a host. And the host in this case, as Christoph uh, described, are, were humans. So, uh, be and because of the host, so to say, the virus develops meaning. Without the host, the only meaning is to multiply uh, and to uh, transform. These are the two meanings which you can say are Im uh, implied in the code of the virus. Uh, it has only this, let's say, minimal meaning. But in interaction with the host, which are humans, it uh, develops this kind of uh, uh, yeah, superpower transforming, so to say, to some extent, the planet, uh, really transforming uh, social uh, and human life uh, on the planet in quite a tremendous way. Th this is one aspect. The second aspect is uh, what I mentioned also already before, that the transformation processes which uh, took place uh, in the Anthropocenic time, basically during the great acceleration of the last 60, 70 years, um, that the appearance of the virus is to some extent putting this under a microscope uh, and uh, to, to uh, where, let's say, the transformation, which are from a, a human experiential point sometimes not uh, possible to sense, uh, get sensible. Um, for example, climate change, as we know it, is very difficult to sense as, as a long, longer time process. You uh, can experience phenomena of climate change, but not the climate change itself uh, bodily. But with the virus, um, you, you can, uh, which is spread, so to say, in uh, weeks and months around the world uh, because of human behaviors, you can directly feel that. So it's to some extent an accelerated uh, anthropocenic uh, process. Uh, and uh, also um, articulates the infrastructure uh, uh, infrastructures. Uh, and Christoph has already mentioned that the whole mobility system and the infrastructures like airplanes, airports, and so on, which uh, are supporting this kind of, of mobility. And what it turns out, uh, what we can see is in order to react to uh, such a situation as the virus, we need now uh, billions of dollars and euros to compensate, so to say, uh, to, to uh, the stop of this uh, of these infrastructures. So we developed in the Anthropocene a world uh, of basically massive infrastructures, which the virus, to some extent, puts to a test. Uh, 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 you can say, and. Uh, so uh, in, in that sense, I think it's uh, uh, very interesting to look at it 
from an anthropocenic point of view. Also with, of course, the question, are these kind of anthropocenic uh, infrastructures we developed in the last decades, uh, are they sustainable in, in, in the future? Uh, uh, taking into account that we get more and more intertwined with, in our behavior and our actions with natural processes, which is, so to say, an implication of the anthropocenic uh, process. Um, and uh, needs uh, in this kind of crisis, um, because of this intertwinedness, uh, incredible uh, finances to, to, uh, to deal with the situation. I think this is one uh, aspect which is very important. The uh, third aspect perhaps uh, we may talk about is uh, the relationship between knowledge production and the Anthropocene and the Corona uh, virus. Uh, because what we are living through at the moment is a, a knowledge production uh, so to say in real time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, where uh, knowledge production um, is used to react to the virus and at the same time transforming, of, of course, at, uh, our life conditions in a way so that you, you, we are living through kind of feedback loops, uh, which are characteristic also for the Anthropocenic world. Uh, that not, uh, we are, have not any more, let's say, an outside perspective on the world, right. describing the world, but with the knowledge we produce, we are in a kind of constant interaction with world production, which reflects then again on our knowledge production. I think that's it's such an interesting point, that knowledge production piece. And we've talked, I've talked with several people on COVID calls about some of the ways that manifests itself, for example, with these very elaborate data visualizations, yeah. which to me harken back almost to the Cold War and the idea of the Cold War expert being able to have the kind of dashboard to understand risk and translating risk to fellow experts or scientists and occasionally trying to translate that risk to the public. But in this sense, these risks are being translated every minute to the public on the front page or the digital front page of, of newspapers around the world. So I like the way you're thinking about this, Bern, in the sense that it's a not only knowledge production in real time, but a reckoning with that. And yeah. risk toleration, for example, is one of the pieces of that that we see in sort of, it's maybe not usually framed that way, but every day in the American news, we're talking about what we can and can't tolerate in terms of risk. I wonder... Yeah, but the, yeah. This, this is one aspect. The other aspect is uh, what is, of course, the implication of all simulations is that uh, these simulated world uh, uh, worlds, uh, they uh, reflect only a uh, finite number of parameters to deal with. And uh, uh, I mean, uh, we, we have, especially in Germany, I don't know to which extent that is taking, I mean, it's taking place in the United States too, of course, is what kind of knowledge should... Um, uh, guide us in this situation? Is it just the knowledge by the uh, virologists and ep uh, uh, epidemiologists? Or uh, do we need uh, social scientists, economists, uh, psychiatrists, and so on, 
to become involved. So in which way uh, our disciplinary knowledge systems can be uh, uh, reflect uh, the situation we are in. And what, what are the models we should produce? I think that is, uh, from a knowledge perspective, a very important uh, uh, discussion. Because uh, at the beginning, uh, basically, uh, uh, health experts were discussing about the, the situation. But then, of course, economists came in, sociologists uh, came in, and so on. And, and the question, what does that mean for social development, for uh, individual development, uh, the, this, uh, the crisis we are in? Christoph, let me bring you in on that. I mean, that's so interesting. And it does reflect cultural difference in the United States. The epidemiological reality of COVID-19 very quickly got turned into a discussion about the stock market. And, you know, so then you see knowledge filtering through these many different layers. I, I've been thinking a lot about the, the status of scientists at this time. And I've seen such incredible extremes from, you know, Tony Fauci in the United States. I don't know if you have a German equivalent, but he's being held up now as, as uh, our Galileo. I mean, he's, you know, he's, he's a man who bears witness, not only to science, but to the inappropriate attack on science. And then at the same time, he's has to have, um, and maybe this is a peculiarly American thing, although I think maybe in Brazil, it could be the same. He has to have bodyguards. I mean, he's under threat. And he's certainly under threat daily in a rhetorical sense. I'm making things a little binary, but I know as a historian of science, these kinds of issues are on your mind. Could you say a little bit about your thinking about science and scientists and how their reputation and status could be in flux in this time? Um, even though I'm a historian of science, you catch me a little bit on my on my light foot here because I haven't really reflected on, on the role of, of the sciences in, in all of this. Uh, beyond what is in our news as well and beyond uh, the death threats that go to the most popular uh, epidemi epidemiologist that Germany has who actually runs uh, a podcast uh, 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 as well ever since February uh, I believe uh, Christian Drosten is, uh, is his name um, uh, but but I I see that there is a, a renewed discussion uh, about the role of science and scientific expertise uh, in, in informing political decision making. Um, I mean, we never had. I mean, we were we are fortunate enough that we have political leaders who, uh, at least on paper, follow uh, scientific uh, advice, uh, even though they have also neglected much of it uh, uh, for the past decades when it comes to climate change. Even they had one commission after the other, you know, who, who right. was, you know, um, uh, arguing for a much more aggressive uh, energy vendor, uh, for instance, than, than actually uh, took place. Um, however, uh, in general, I think one, one could say that the German government uh, follows, uh, at least to some extent, evidence-based <laughs> Uh, uh, science uh, and and uh, uh, um, to um, 
to at least inform the parameters of their policies. And, and that turned out uh, uh, pretty fortunate uh, for how Germany handled uh, the virus uh, in, in the first place. Um, um, but still, I mean, we have also uh, uh, a minority uh, uh, in, in our population, but a very loud minority that, uh, you know, because we, we uh, uh, Germany was so successful in containing uh, the pandemic in the first place, they questioned um, the 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 expertise and the the closeness between scientists uh, uh, to to the government. Um, you know, um, they questioned the validity of of uh, the strong measures uh, uh, that have been uh, put in place, uh, etc. So we have. I, we have also quite a um, vibrant uh, uh, discussion uh, going on in, in Germany at the moment as to what um, expertise, uh, or not, not expertise, but what, what, what can scientific, how, how much influence should, should, have, uh, should scientific advice have on the realm of, of uh, politics uh, as such. May, may I come in on this? Uh, yeah, please do. Um, I mean, you can look at the corona crisis, uh, and I speak now from a German perspective, as a life experiment. And uh, a life experience, that means that the scientists themselves, and they were very open about it, like uh, people like Drosten, did not know all the implications right from the beginning. They did not know the phenomena. They could not uh, define the phenomena in all its complexity right from the beginning. So we are, we're going through weeks and months where the scientists put on some results of their research. Uh, politicians reacted to that and they changed that in the process. So at the same time where we went through a life experiment, we went also through an education what science is, meaning that the natural scientists, and uh, most of them were very clear about it, did not have the truth, the truth, right from the beginning, but were in a kind of experimental process where at certain stages they came up with new findings. For example, at the beginning, in, in, at least in the German discussion, which was, uh, uh, I mean, really driven by the scientists, um, the role of masks was not clear. It was also not clear to which extent schools and kindergartens are major locations to spread the virus. The, and, and then, uh, of course, uh, uh, analysis began. began. I mean, they, they started to, to, to analyze these situations. So um, this kind of truth or falsehood uh, discussion, um, which uh, was uh, informing, let's say, the populist debates in the last uh, years, uh, um, were to some extent put on stage, what that mm -hmm. means from a scientific perspective. So to some extent, I think quite, at least in Germany, quite, a number of people learned that scientific knowledge 
does not mean there is one truth, but there may be also processes where you develop truth um, in, in, in the process. I think this was a very important point uh, to that. Of course, there were, let's say, and especially right-wing people uh, who started uh, to speculate uh, on kind of uh, different kind of, I mean, basically criticizing science altogether. That that is also there, but I think also when you take people who um, trust the sciences, and uh, I think uh, we had about sixty to seventy percent of the population which went with the uh, with the government, who took basically decisions on scientific findings. Uh, even these people, for these people, I think it's an open question. What do you mean? with expert knowledge, mm -hmm. um, because there is expert knowledge by the epidemiologists who give you, let's say, their perspective on how the vi what the virus is, how it spreads, how, uh, uh, let's say, in, in quote, what kind of behavior the virus has. But this, of course, is just one aspect for the whole society. Uh, uh, you have to have economical knowledge, you have to have uh, social, political, uh, political knowledge too, to uh, make the picture bigger than just looking at what the epistemology, uh, epidemiologists and the virologists uh, tell you. And uh, of course, uh, since these are, uh, we have also clever natural scientists, the natural scientists said that at the point too, don't only listen to us, listen also to the to the others. So what became clear in the crisis in a very accentuated way is what does it mean to live in a society where you have highly uh, 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 disciplinary, disciplinary knowledge, highly developed disciplinary knowledge, but knowledge which is quite fragmented. Mm -hmm. uh, but you have to uh, uh, come up with solutions for the whole, for the whole society not just for one aspect of society. And um, I think this, from an anthropocentric point of view, is also very important to see, because um, if you want to deal with the anthropocentric transformation in a more holistic way or in a more, let's say, eco-sensitive way, you have to look on different parameters, not just, let's say, parameters done by one of the uh, special scientists. So in, in that sense, I think uh, the corona uh, 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 crisis, at least in the German context, uh, brought up uh, in different ways the question, what expertise, what kind of knowledge systems are uh, needed to deal with, with these kind of large transformation which are, are going on. reminder to everyone that you're listening to COVID calls and I'm talking to Bernd Scher and Christoph Rosal. I think those those points there that both of you are making um, about how 
or maybe we're not usually used to, or we're not privy to uh, the the messiness of science playing out in real time and in public. It, it also, I mean, that's an important point to make. And it's also one in which I think it's, it's worth bringing climate change back into this discussion because I feel like scientists have grown so wary of the problem of change around climate science that at least in the way they discuss it in the United States, the first thing that's always emphasized is consensus. It's said almost usually in this way, you will never find a scientist of any repute who disagrees with us. That's almost always the first thing that's said when, when climate science is discussed in the United States with the public, which is true, but it also downplays the vitality of the scientific process, which is about dispute. And that's a that's an interesting tension that really burst into the into the public. Christoph, I want to ask you about this because in the United States early on, one of the moves that was quite interesting was a discussion in which people who are in favor of what we here call a green new deal or decarbonizing the economy said, "Look, the impossible. What you told us was impossible is perhaps possible. We've slowed down emissions." Uh, the industrial economy can be slowed. And as we come out of this, they had that discussion. That was a little tricky because nobody wanted to say we should have a pandemic in order to shift to a green economy. But the next part of what they said was crucial because, and they're still saying it, um, as we move out of an economic crisis, why would we double down on the very technologies, the very kind of economy that brought us into what we're calling the Anthropocene. Why wouldn't we use this moment as an opportunity to move to a green economy? And I know you've been tracking that discussion in Germany. Can, can you say a little bit about how that's played out there? Because here we have a case where uh, maybe transitions that are underway slowly percolating along could begin to happen quite rapidly, I think. Uh, yes, I agree. I mean, um... Um, same situation over here. Um, um, people or uh, um, scientists, but also sustainability advocates, uh, uh, renewable energy advocates, etc., were were scared uh, at the at the outlook that the pandemic would throw us back several years uh, uh, now, you know, with money uh, that is now being spent on revitalizing the old fossil economy just to get people back, you know, into their, into their usual, you know, workplace and, and um, uh, um, pattern of, of uh, money making. Um, but it turned out uh, that the, the Speed uh, at which this uh, pandemic came over us has also accelerated um, the green transition to a greener uh, economy. It, uh, at least this is sort of the, the the net sum of decisions that have been made uh, after uh, after the uh, uh, or over the last uh, couple of months. Of course, prepared. Uh, uh, longer uh, for a long time, um, especially on on an uh, EU uh, level, um, 
uh, and a commission that was uh, very climate friendly from the outset and that were planning to reveal uh, what is here called the EU uh, Green Deal um, anyways, uh, even without the pandemic. But it has, uh, I think, uh, the, the COVID-19 has provided an opportunity to uh, make that point more clearly and more explicitly that this is about avoiding uh, uh, a slow disaster <laughs> Uh, in a way uh, that is in, in the back of the rapid disaster that is in front of our eyes uh, currently uh, ongoing. And the hope is, of course, that populations are much more um, open uh, for uh, more aggressive and drastic uh, uh, measures now uh, since they have had this experience, um, the experience that things could actually change pretty fast and and uh, the possibility of collapse is is real um, and, and and that's in that sense uh, i think it has opened the eyes uh, a little bit to um to um that there is discontinuity in our uh, in our world that there is uh, that there are, are things that are beyond um uh, that are more important maybe uh, uh, than uh, our everyday on, uh, ongoings uh, for once, right? That the experience of the lockdown was, was a very personal and, very, and a very uh, um, uh, emotional uh, one, but also that uh, uh, on, a, uh, on, a, on, a, on a bigger level that also uh, a lot of money can actually be spent uh, or can be mobilized uh, in order to cope with, with, uh, with, real threats and and now of course the 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 aim is um to uh to sort of run this message home that it's not just uh, uh, a virus uh, uh that that threatens uh, our health but it's also um uh, uh climate change or uh biodiversity uh collapse that is uh, threatening uh, our societies and our health on, on a much more systemic level and that we have to uh, uh, now create resilience um, uh, for our societies uh, to make uh, this transition uh, much faster than, than uh, it has been uh, ongoing for, for a while. We're almost up on time. I want to try to get one more question in and, and, this question springs from a conversation I had with a member of the Anthropocene Working Group uh, last year, Mark Williams. And Mark is an extraordinary scientist and fascinating person. And, and I asked Mark this question. I said, could you, so he's a specialist at reading core samples. And um, I asked him, I said, could you find the the signature, we were talking about this search for the golden spike that you were talking about, Bernd, and, and how scientists use the sedimentary layers, how they read them in core samples. And I said, do you find a signature for slavery if I challenged you to? Could, could you locate, how fine can you get in, in the way that you read um, the sedimentary record? And that's crucial, I think, as part of this discussion of the locating where maybe where the Anthropocene begins. And 
with that? And, and he said, oh, absolutely, I could do that. And then he, I listened to him talk for the next half an hour. And he talked about all the many different ways that you'd go about doing that. And you both know him and his work. And you can imagine this conversation. Vern, let me ask you this. It, it's If we looked for the signature of this pandemic, what do you think it will it will look like in again sort of thinking we've been talking a lot about society and the way we live it and understand it right now but maybe projecting a little bit forward what kind of a layer is is this pandemic going to leave or do you think it it won't this is too much of an event located in time and it will be part of a something else something broader i ask this question because there's this tension between the event and the slower playing out processes, which Christoph, you were just talking about, I think in, in a way that's really important to how that gets translated into politics. But I, I wonder what's the signature? What's the, what's in the sedimentary layer of COVID? Bernd, let me ask you that question. <laughs> I wait until it's really I, late at night there I, to I, ask you these questions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> it's naughty. Uh, I think uh, uh, we are really not in a position to say that at the moment because we are still in the process. We, we really don't know uh, uh, how this process is going to, to end or if it, it's going to end at all. Um, it, it, because it becomes clearer and clearer that, for example, uh, uh, also the scientists say, um, even if we find vaccination and so on, uh, we have to live with this with this virus. We have to develop modes of life uh, which um, integrate the virus into our lives. Um, and I think this is uh, one lesson to learn uh, from the situation we are in, which is also an Anthropocenic uh, lesson, that uh, we got to the Anthropocene as we know it because for a long time the major uh, habitus of modernity was that we transform the, the the world as we would like it to do. I mean, it's just our wish right. and uh, on, on we, our we, in our right. terms. So I think uh, the lesson we can learn from the virus, but also from other climate change and so on, is that we have to develop again uh, our sensibilities to understand also other uh, agents in the world we are living in and to uh, integrate them in a larger picture and not just trying to transform the world from our uh, human perspective or the perspective of some uh, actors of humanity. I think this is uh, one major, uh, uh, major uh, uh, lesson we can learn. Uh, and in that sense, I, I would really argue also that uh, the uh, coronavirus, because of the of accelerating a lot of anthropocenic processes, uh, made us this to be experienced and not just a knowledge about. Christoph, do you want to take us out at this question of the corona layer? Um, I'm not sure whether whether. Um, uh, sediment cores are, are or ice cores are that highly resolved you know have that fine uh, resolution uh, but I, I think you could actually at least locally you could detect that little bump uh, you know around March 
where global industrial pollution basically stopped for a few weeks, right? You, you, you probably might might even see that in, in the geological record, but it will be, I mean, it, it's just so short-lived um, and it will be smeared uh, out. Uh, so it, it definitely won't be visible in, in, in the longer future. But uh, in general, you probably can, could detect this, uh, this moment when, when the human world came to a standstill. I, I, I believe so that, 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 and that, that is, I mean, that is definitely a historical, uh, moment in the history of, of modernity, uh, at least, right. That, that and an entire globe, uh, has been, has been shut down, uh, for uh, a few days. May I add something to that? Yes, please. Uh, I, I think, uh, this point Christoph just made that it may be not reflected in the sediment, uh, this short, um, uh, is also. Uh, a signification of the Anthropocene because our uh, the processes of transforming the planetary system are now going so fast that using sediments to show uh, to uh, uh, demonstrate new earth epochs may be not any more good enough in the future mm. uh, and we have to look for new ways of defining, so to say, Earth epochs um, uh, in, in, in the future. And uh, I think this is a very interesting um, reflection on how we define Earth epochs. Uh, and the discussion amongst the geologists and Earth scientists that 50 years or 70 years, um, uh, because the idea is to, to define the, the Anthropocene starting with uh, after World War II, more or less, um, uh, is already a challenge to the old mm. concept of Earth epochs, uh, which lasted thousands, uh, ten thousands of years. And uh, this uh, transformation we are living in at the moment is so, sh uh, so short, so accelerated, so to say, that uh, the classical systems of defining Earth epochs may be not any more good enough. Just want to remind everybody you've been listening to COVID calls. I need to let my guests get to bed because it's after midnight in Berlin. And uh, that last question that I asked, maybe that one, you could take that one. I, I feel like that could have some future at the house. <laughs> maybe in the future, yeah. I, I'll get a chance to come back to Berlin and we could talk about that there at the house. Um, Your guest again, please. I miss these discussions with you both. I want to remind everybody also, you can check out the work of the, of the Hakave. Um, I, I would start with anthropocene-curriculum.org just to get a sense of what was described earlier as the archive of this anthropocene work. It's really stuff. Uh, Scott, when we did the CC World project, the idea was to also create a kind of cultural archive of the, uh, the uh, COVID time we are living through. So uh, this way of archiving uh, the situations we are in uh, may take different forms nowadays. Well, let's keep the discussion going. And I want to remind everybody that you can catch COVID calls any weekday from 5 p.m. And, and you can always catch us on YouTube Live or on Periscope or on Facebook. And I want to thank my guests, Bernd Shearer and Christoph Rosal for spending this time 
with us tomorrow, we're going to be talking about comedy in the Anthropocene, and not the Anthropocene, and COVID, although comedy in the Anthropocene would make a good topic too. Um, we're going to talk about the pandemic and comedy with uh, Kurt Brownoller, so please do join us for that. Bern and Christoph, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you. Thanks for the invitation. It was really great to talk to you. Stay healthy, everyone. We'll see you tomorrow, 5 o'clock.